Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme— Today's episode is about slavery, it's about education, and it's about freedom. Since 1619, the institution of slavery has been an atrocious debasement of human nature. What began as indentured servitude grew over 150 years into an institution of hereditary slavery based upon the color of one's skin. Myself, and a great many of my contemporaries, were lifelong participants of the institution, and regardless of our sentiments upon it, sit complicit in the legacy of it. Now, dear listener, we find ourselves today upon an auspicious occasion, a holiday fairly new to the American pantheon of holidays called Juneteenth, a celebration and commemoration of freedom finally achieved, and the path we still have to travel to truly achieve the ideals of independence. Now, because of this, I thought today would be a perfect opportunity to talk about an initiative I became involved in in the 1760s, an endeavor to educate enslaved children of North America, the Bray School. And joining us today is a very special guest from your time who will help facilitate the conversation. And I do believe they're joining us just now. Good day, madam. Please see yourself in. Have a seat. Now to introduce her. Nicole Brown is a master's student in American studies at the College of William and Mary. Her topics of interest center around American women's roles in education, legislation, religion, and the institution of slavery. In addition to her graduate work, Mrs. Brown works full-time as a public historian that specializes in performing, researching, and interpreting women in Virginia, spanning from 1750 to 18 and 20. She has performed at a variety of historic and cultural sites, such as the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, Monticello, and the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. She currently works full-time portraying Anne Wager and developing programming on the Williamsburg Bray School for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Mrs. Brown's research has also taken her across the globe. Nicole spoke in Reims, France, at the 2018 National Association for Interpretation's annual conference regarding the efficacy of using character interpretation to discuss challenging topics. 
She has also conducted research trips to the University of Oxford and Lambeth Palace Library to study the topics of religion, education, and slavery in colonial Virginia. Her ongoing study of the Bray Associates and black literacy in American history is a main focus of her current research. Nicole Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Be Frank. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Madam, would you do me the kindness of providing some clarity upon something? Of course. You are now, at present, the second or third person whose august company I've had the privilege to keep on this show. And I'm wondering, Madam, uh, as I've assumed up to this point that everyone's joined me in my time, are you joining me in the 18th century, or... Am I somehow, by happenstance, joining you in the 21st century? It really is semantics. It won't affect our conversation. It's really just from my own idle curiosity. I'm so glad you've asked this question, because I think we have the option, depending on what your listeners are interested in, in doing both. I say let's do both. Let's, <laughs> let's enjoy this uh, smorgasbord of <laughs> history. So uh, we're here... On a, a very uh, important holiday in your time. Yes. Uh, a fairly new holiday in your time. Mm-hmm. And we are taking this special episode to, to talk about uh, a fairly prolific subject in American history, which is the subject of slavery. Yes. Uh, now, we, we find ourselves on a specific holiday that uh, commemorates and celebrates those peoples who are still affected by that institution, uh, the holiday of Juneteenth. And I wonder before we, we talk if you, you might in, inform us of, of what this holiday is, of, of what it means, and, and how Americans uh, can assist uh, our black countrymen in commemorating this holiday. This is a wonderful question. So just to give some context, Juneteenth is a holiday that commemorates really a couple of different things. Um, First and foremost, it commemorates General Granger in 1865, arriving on June 19th in Galveston, Texas, to issue Order Number 3, which essentially um, announced that the end of the Civil War had occurred and that all formerly enslaved people were free. This is significant because remember I say it's 1865 when General Granger does this, but the Emancipation Proclamation had occurred in 1863. So many of these enslaved men and women and children in Galveston had been freed due to the Emancipation Proclamation almost two full years prior. And so the realization in this moment, it's a moment of celebration. It's a moment of um, pain. It's, its you know, I was talking with um, a descendant uh, from the Bray School, which I know we'll talk about. And she always visualizes it as a cacophony of shouts and noises and reactions, um, this opportunity of expression. And I think when it comes to Juneteenth, the opportunity of expression for black citizens, black Americans, and your black neighbors is really important for you to hold space for that. Uh, And what I'd recommend for really any American on Juneteenth is not only to learn and study more about the holiday and why it occurs, but also do some research yourself of how your local black community and many who are descended from formerly enslaved peoples 
celebrate this holiday and have traditionally celebrated it in your own community. Juneteenth is celebrated in many different ways across the country. How it's celebrated in Williamsburg may or may not be very different than Galveston or where you're from. So do some work yourself on Juneteenth to explore and then take that and carry that with you wherever it goes. Mm, a remarkable answer. A remarkable answer. Now to the meat of what we are here to talk about mm. today, uh, which is an association that I've become personally involved in over the course of my life, mm-hmm. and indeed an institution which I, I will confess I participated in for most of my life, and uh, the perspectives of which I, I changed and adjusted with over the course of my life, and that is um, the Bray Associates, the Bray School and indeed the institution of slavery. Now, uh, Nicole Brown, how, how did you come about discovering this work, of, of studying this often overlooked but so incredibly important history? Well, it's funny you would ask me that because the initial question you asked of what era are we in is not only a question I'm deeply familiar with, but I often grapple with myself. (laughs) So traditionally, I wear a lot of different hats or caps, depending on when you find me. Um, I started and came to my research on the Bray School through portraying Anne Wager, who is and was uh, the first and only official teacher of the Williamsburg Bray School, a white widowed woman in colonial Virginia, in colonial Williamsburg, uh, who ran the school for 14 years, the Williamsburg Bray School, since there was more than one Bray School, as you know. Uh, Through that, Nicole Brown became deeply interested in the complexities, the contradictions, and also the revelations that came to me from both Mrs. Wager and the Williamsburg Bray School. And so in addition to portraying Mrs. Wager, I now wear a variety of different hats in the 21st century. So I'm the manager of core programming at Colonial Williamsburg, including helping to lead the team that will imagine the interpretive site plan for the Williamsburg Bray School site. I'm a doctoral student at William & Mary doing research on the Williamsburg Bray School. And I am the lab assistant at William & Mary's Bray School lab. So that's a long way of saying, it's actually Anne Wager that brought me to understanding the Bray School. And then from that, it is the descendants of Bray School students who have taken my learning and my opportunity to listen further. Mm. Mrs. Brown, I'm called in my lifetime a polymath, but I, I think, madam, you are putting me quite to the blush. But I, I do, I do, I, I must uh, clarify on, on one specific thing. You are telling me that for a time, uh, as a profession, you pretended to be someone from history? Yes, that is absolutely correct. You, you dressed up as this individual, and mm-hmm. you... Uh, adopted their name and their mannerisms and pretended to to be them for the purpose of teaching? Absolutely. I just can't fathom how you do something like that. You know, it is such an odd job, but I have the feeling you might do an exceptional job at it if you gave it a try. Well, that's kind of you to say (laughs) so. (laughs) But as I was saying before, um, so your your job specifically in, in the course of this is not only about history, but about about community, cultivating these relationships 
in the present day with these people connected with the school? Have you, have you found a lot of them in Williamsburg? This is a wonderful question, and I think you have hit the nail straight on the head. The whole uh, idea behind not just interpreting, but preserving, and in many cases, reimagining the legacy of the Williamsburg Bray School has a great deal to do with both discovery and community. Discovery for guests, for descendants, for anyone who wants to learn more about the Williamsburg Bray School. And in that process, we build a community that explores that ongoing legacy of black education and faith. And so when it comes to descendants who are directly connected to the Bray School, there are quite a few. I'm very, very fortunate at the Bray School Lab um, that every year annually we have Descendant Outreach Week, which is when descendants of Bray School students and other community members who are vested in helping to tell the story can gather together, share experiences, learn about new research being done, and also talk about what they might want to see moving forward. Um, there are many descendants, black and white, um, indigenous um, or mixed race, who are connected to this school um, and its complexity, of which the school is very complex in both how it addresses education and faith, but also its relationship to religion and slavery, and how these students and their descendants uh, are reframing what actually happened at the school. Um, you know, the Bray Associates, as I'm sure you know, uh, were an organization founded by the Reverend Dr. Thomas Bray. And you yourself were a Bray associate starting in 1760. So the interesting thing about the Williamsburg Bray School, as I'm sure you already know, is that it is one of several, including a Bray School in Philadelphia, in New York City, in Newport, Rhode Island, and Fredericksburg, Virginia, all between 1757 and 1777. So it's a very active time within the British Empire, uh, specifically for the propagation of the doctrines of the official religion in the British Empire, which is unsurprisingly the Church of England. At this time though, the Church of England is pro-slavery. So they advocate for the institution of slavery and training people to the station they see that God ordained them to. And yet, time and time again, I'm sure you even noticed this when you visited the Williamsburg Bray School, we see students resisting that instruction. Mm. And dare I say, I have a dear colleague of mine called Dr. Lee, and I always like to give people credit for when they come up with things. Very often, I come up with very little myself. But Dr. Lee always says that the students came to school with their own ingenuity carried in them. Mm. It was not given to them by the school. And so you have this pro-slavery religious school, and yet you have multiple examples of students resisting that instruction and making meaning outside of that. That legacy manifests in families who both have moved further afield than Williamsburg and who still live in Williamsburg, who are descended from those students. And so it's important to both talk about the history of the Bray School in its fullness in the 18th century, and allow opportunities for community and discovery in the present to continue growing that fullness of understanding. Hmm. Do you have any examples of that um, resistance, that demonstration of, of ingenuity of these students mm. taking these lessons and making something more, or at the very least, their own out of it? I have a lot of examples. I will try to limit myself, not because, and, and the examples I give are not because I favor one particular story or child over another. 
of the 300 some odd students who we believe attended the school, each child is unique and perfect in their own right. And if I could talk about everyone, I would. But when it comes to concrete examples in primary sources, there are two I really like to bring up. One is a young girl and one is a young boy. The young girl, her name is Hannah. She is enslaved by somebody who I am sure you know, Robert Carter Nicholas, who is the treasurer of Virginia, um, starting in the mid-1760s. He is also the trustee, or one of the most prolific trustees, of the Williamsburg Bray School. In 1762, he sends a young black girl who is enslaved in his household by the name of Hannah to the school. She's seven when she starts at the school. And interestingly, at first blush, that would appear to be all we have, her name, her age, who enslaved her. But if you are meticulous about reading different sources together and really sifting through the bias of those sources, since we're all biased when we write sources, I'm biased when I write a letter, um, you can catch, and in fact, even I would say, become educated by Hannah in your own right. So Robert Carter Nicholas writes a corresponding letter of one of many to the Bray Associates on December 27th of 1765. And he writes essentially that this school is not operating in the way you thought it might, Bray Associates. And he gives a particular example. He says, quote, I have a Negro girl in my family who was educated at this school upwards of three years and made as good a progress as most, although she turns out a sad jade, notwithstanding all we can do to reform her. End quote. So considering that we know he only sent one enslaved child to the school three years prior, based on the written record, it has to be Hannah. We also know in this example, he likens her to an old worn out horse. That's what a jade is. But if you sift through his bias, what you really see is Hannah must be resisting the instruction in some way, shape or form. We don't know how. But she's doing it enough that he's chosen to write about her to a person he's never met. What does that say about 10-year-old Hannah? Well, more specifically, that he is attributing, in some respect, the Bray School for, essentially, Hannah's demeanor, her mm -hmm. countenance. Exactly. And I think what's interesting is he is ascribing her countenance to the Bray School, but it is also Hannah and however she's consuming her education that leads to her countenance. Um, we don't know yet any more about Hannah, but we're very fortunate that the Bray School Initiative, which is a partnership between Colonial Williamsburg and William and Mary, on the William and Mary end, we have hired a full-time genealogist who specializes in black 18th century colonial genealogy. So she is doing more research on all of the Bray School students. We also, through William and Mary, have hired a full-time oral historian who is actually both a descendant of enslaved and enslavers connected to the Bray School. Both wonderful, wonderful women. Another great example of how these students not necessarily are what they're learning in the classroom, but that this influence or impact of the Bray School must be transforming them in ways that are unique and individual to them, and in some ways antithetical to the teaching of the Bray School, is another young boy by the name of Isaac B. There is some conversation currently amongst different descendants on whether or not Isaac B. was 
enslaved or whether he was mixed race and therefore enslaved only till 31 years of age in Virginia. We're still doing more research. And so I want to give credit to many different people having different opinions on this. But we know that in some way, shape or form, he is either enslaved or perceived as enslaved in 1774 when he self-emancipates from the house of um, Lewis Burrell, who is the grandson of John Blair. And they mention in his runaway ad, quote, he thinks he is entitled to his freedom because his father is free and I suppose he shall endeavor to pass for one, end quote. We know he's recaptured based on tax records and we know from a recent runaway ad that was rediscovered two years ago, he ran again. He self-emancipated again. So you see this boy who we know is being taught pro-slavery ideology at the school. But by the time he's 17 or 18, he is resisting that instruction in a very visible way and does it more than once, which is very physically dangerous for him. I also wonder too, I don't have an answer to this, but I do wonder, um, especially with you, Mr. Franklin, um, you know, what happened to the enslaved boy that your wife sent to the Philadelphia Bray School, Othello? Mm. We don't know more, or let me rephrase that. I don't know more about him currently, but I think it will be interesting um, to see what happens and what I can learn hopefully more about Othello, and maybe at another time we can come back and talk about him. I think something that leaves quite the impression on me is how you speak of uncovering history. The true nature of sifting through time of things that have long since been lost. Uh, Stories that are rediscovered not only through dusty tomes and attics, but through oral storytelling, uh, taking pieces of shattered pottery and over time rearranging them. how you speak of uncovering the past strikes me in a, a most unique way. And it, it leads me to, to wonder if we might go down somewhat of a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine for a moment, it's 247 years from where we sit now, let's say in mm-hmm. your time, mm-hmm. 2023. Let's imagine for a moment this mysterious time with its hypothetical innovations. And I have often wished I could live a hundred years more that I might see what's, what's next. What does history say regarding the Bray School? Because of the work you are doing now, because of the work the descendants of the Bray School are doing now, because of how you are changing the way history is taught, what's the legacy of the Bray School 247 years from the point we sit now? This is a wonderful question because I think the answer of this will change as much day to day as it will century to century. And I don't say that because um, the past is not knowable or we can't glean valuable information from documents that have existed for hundreds of years. But I say it because as we continue to build a community that encourages research and discovery in lots of different ways. I think what will happen with the Bray School legacy will be that it will deepen and grow in helping people understand it, as one descendant has said, in its fullness. Mm. The Bray School was ugly. It was beautiful. It was messy. It was human. 
it was inhuman. You have a school teaching pro-slavery ideology, and yet students are gaining meaning because and despite of that. So I think to really understand the Bray School and its aftershocks, you have to look at it from many different perspectives and be willing to know where your knowledge ends and someone else's begins. Mm. If I do my job right, I hope people will critique what I write now and add to it. It shouldn't end with me. And it shouldn't end with anyone, hypothetically, in the year 2023. You need to use archaeology, what's in the ground, building preservation, architectural preservation is the right term, what's found in perhaps the building of the Bray School, oral history, what communities say about it, written records. Any one of these arenas, if looked at solely on its own, will not give you a complete picture because no one arena can give you a complete picture. But if you put them together, they give you this beautiful bricolage of ideas that lead people to discovery and exploration. And so I think the legacy of the Bray School is it's still happening. I think, and perhaps you relate to this profoundly, sometimes people study history and they assume everything is done, knowable, concrete. And yet the more you study and the more you think about things from different perspectives, the more you learn about history and its legacy. And so I like to think of the legacy as ongoing, built by people who do wonderful scholarship, thoughtfully and ethically. Mm. Remarkable answer. Are there any resources or books you would recommend to our Junto for people who, who want to discover more? There are several I'd recommend. If you want to go straight to the primary sources, John Van Horn's Religious Philanthropy and Colonial Slavery, which was published by the University of Illinois Press in 1985, is a wonderful book. And I am pleased to say, while the book is out of print, thanks to the beautiful idea of libraries and lending libraries, it is accessible were you to use a lending library. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. In addition to that, there are many additional resources. Were you to go to the Colonial Williamsburg website and look up the Bray School, there is a robust digital page. The same thing applies to looking up the Bray School lab at William and Mary. But stay tuned because there's a little bit more in the next 18 months. I will be having two book chapters coming out through Rutledge University Press, both on the history of the Bray School and literacy and how we define literacy at the school that will be co-authored and one chapter that focuses on how we see children in early America when they're hidden in primary sources. Mm. Last but not least, and this is a joint effort, and of all the things I've ever done, I think the thing I'm most proud of, Colonial Williamsburg, in partnership with William & Mary, will be publishing a book in fall of 2024 on the Bray School. I and Dr. Maureen Eldersman Lee, who is the director of William & Mary's Bray School Lab, are the co-editors of the book. And there will be a series of letters that not only will be transcribed and have been transcribed by students at the college in their learning growth, but also it'll be the first opportunity for the original documents themselves to have been imaged and put into the book in the history of the Bray Associates. Mm. There will be 20 some odd essays that are written by academics and descendants of Bray School students. 
and all of those will be available to you along with audio recordings of every single Bray School transcription coming in November of 2024. I think that's history worth waiting for. Remarkable, remarkable. <laughs> now, uh, the last question is for you, and it's something I ask to all of my travelers who visit with me on Let's Be Frank. What is it about studying and teaching history that sets you on fire? That's a wonderful question. And I have to confess, it's a wonderful question for many reasons, but it's one of the few questions that I don't have an immediate answer to. I have to really think about that. I think what sets me on fire about history is the possibility of sharing narratives that have been silenced. Mm. And also myself adding to what we know about history in a thoughtful way. Um, maybe this isn't come so as, a, as a surprise to you speaking on a podcast, but I love talking. <laughs> and um, sometimes I talk a great deal for my myriad of jobs, but being able to be in a community that requires me to actively listen, to stop talking and reflect on where I can grow as a person based on my exploration of the past is the gift of a lifetime. Mm. And it is one that keeps giving. Nicole Brown, from one polymath to another, <laughs> I'm just so pleased to have this conversation with you. Now, uh, we can continue our conversation for a time. We're gonna bid farewell to our junto and then we'll work together to figure out how to get to our respective times. Uh, but I wish you all the best in your endeavors. And above all, thank you for uncovering the past the way you do. It's been a pleasure. Now, what lesson, dear listener, can we derive from today's installment? In 1776, we declared that all men are created equal. In my time, our society did not reflect these ideas. And indeed, in your time, perhaps it still does not reflect these ideas. But it has always been the end of America to aspire to a more perfect society. And so... As we look to this Juneteenth and every Juneteenth hereafter, let us listen more than we speak. Let us hold space for those in need. And above all, let's look for the voices missing in the room and lift them up to be heard. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day. But as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>